Chapter Sixteen of the Riddle Ring by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Sixteen: A Letter and a Meeting. Conrad had a long talk with Waley the next day, and the result was that he determined to stand in, as Rose had put it, with the enterprises of the Dauntless Three. He satisfied himself, he thought, that there was nothing about the undertakings which was not honourable and straightforward, although there was a good deal of personal risk, and even of recklessness. It was, in fact, an unsystematised company of founders, who had to look all over the world for new developments and new opportunities of foundation. Whaley's designs were sometimes stupendous in their vastness, and sometimes almost grovelling in their pygmy proportions. The first dream of his life was to find the substitute for coal, the cheap and ready substitute for coal as a housewarmer and an engine driver. "'The man who can get at that, my dear Conrad,' he confidentially said, "'will make the biggest fortune ever made in this world, and it is bound to come, I tell you, "'Somebody will find it soon, and why should not you and I manage somehow to get hold of it? "'You think it over of nights. I keep awake a good deal thinking it over, but I haven't tumbled onto it yet.' "'That was a grand scheme, a heaven-scaling scheme. "'But Whaley was not always titanic. "'There's a neat little fortune, a snug little fortune.' he said to Conrad, lowering his tone, perhaps as if he thought somebody might be listening to this minor proposal who could not possibly think of rising to the grander thought, and also perhaps as if a lowered tone of voice were better suited to a lowered tone of enterprise. "'There's a neat little fortune to be made by the man who invents a substitute for ink. Think of it, dear boy. Half a moment now.' and the right thumb met the upper joint of the right forefinger. Just think of it half a moment. Think of a pencil which can write as darkly as ink, whether it be black, blue, red, violet, or whatever you will, and will be as indelible as ink. Think of the total abolition of the ink bottle and the pen, the pen that corrodes in the ink, the ink that blots the fingers, the ink that upsets and ruins your desk, and the fountain pens that shed their black lifeblood into your waistcoat pocket. Half a moment, Mr. Conrad, think of all that. It must be within the resources of the chemical world to create a substance which will make such a pencil. Or there is such a substance deep in the earth or lying on the surface in some part of the world only waiting for the man of genius to recognise it and carry it away and put it to its use. Half a moment, Mr. Conrad, why should you not be that man? Conrad only shook his head at the suggestion. He feared he should not recognise the substance even if he were to come across it, and as to inventing some chemical compound to serve the same object— he regarded such an achievement as utterly beyond the range of his intellect. "'Well, we must send you somewhere,' Mr. Whaley observed cheerily. 
"'It would be hard if we could not find some place where your pluck and your ideas would come in handy. "'You want to go pretty far away, don't you?' "'The farther the better.' "'Right you are. That's just what I should have said myself at your age. "'Of course, as one begins to get a little on in life, "'one isn't so wildly anxious for far foreign travel. "'We might begin with something easy. "'Now, there's Patagonia.' I'm told there's a lot to be found in Patagonia. A lot of what? Oh, I don't know. A lot of all sorts of things, if one only went out and kept his eyes peeled, as they say in America. How would Patagonia suit you? Patagonia, said Jim with the utmost gravity, would suit me nicely. In truth, Patagonia would have suited him then just as well as any other distant place. So long as he got clear of London and of Paris, he did not care much whither fate might take him, and it would go hard if the makings of a new and stirring romance were not to be found somehow in Patagonia. Perhaps he might make some wonderful discoveries there, who knows? and his mind went back humorously to the saying about Goldsmith and the wheelbarrow. "'I may find something entirely new and precious,' he said to himself, "'in the Patagonian form of wheelbarrow.' We need not go deeper into the Patagonian enterprise, because, as the course of this story will soon make it clear, Jim Conrad never had any opportunity of undertaking it. But it had some influence on his fortunes in the fact that it made him agree to stand in with the triumvirate in their schemes, that it gave him a new interest in life, and that it beguiled his thoughts away from too frequent contemplation of himself and his heart troubles. He saw a great deal of Sir Francis Rose, and he could but feel sometimes with a sort of shudder that the fascination of the man was growing upon him. Of Whaley he began to think better and better every day, although he often allowed himself a quiet smile at Whaley's multitudinous projects. At one time he used to wonder how a man of Sir Francis Rose's refinement could be content with the companionship of a man like Whaley. Now, when he began at ominous moments to find a shiver of distrust going through him as to Rose, he suddenly pulled himself up and satisfied himself with the assurance that a man who was trusted by Whaley must be thoroughly worthy of trust, for he had come fully to believe in Whaley as a gallant and a generous spirit, a chivalric, unselfish and exalted Sancho Panza, although he could see little of the Quixote in Rose. So the days passed pleasantly enough for Conrad, in a way. He began to regard all his past mode of life as done with, and about to be wholly blotted out in enterprise quite new to him. That, he said to himself, was the best thing that could happen to him. He wanted to get away as soon as might be to Patagonia or elsewhere. If he were to meet Clelia Vine again, he did not feel quite sure whether all his longing for self-exile would resist one softening kindly glance from her eyes. And to what avail staying in London or anywhere to be near her? 
he could never be near her in the true sense. She was a married woman. She could not love him. He was beginning to think now that she had never really cared for him at all. He was beginning to doubt whether, even in the beaten way of friendship, she had ever cared much about him. For why did she never write? Why did she tell him nothing about the changed existence of herself and Gertrude Moorfield? If she had gone with Gertrude, as she once spoke of going, out of the reach of civilization, why not one kindly, friendly parting word? "'Tis said, man, and farewell. "'No, not even that parting phrase of Mark Antony to his devoted follower, "'that phrase compressing into its merest formality "'so much of friendship and regret and pity and pathos. "'Nothing of that kind had reached him from her, "'from the woman who had told him she would have loved him "'if she could have loved him without shame.' Every day, every hour of every day, he kept expecting to hear from her. His first thought every morning as he awoke was, Has a letter come from her? Every knock of the postman made his heart almost to stand still in a pause of agonized expectation, until the little tray of letters had been put into his hand, and he saw that there was none from her. Every night when he returned from dinner-party or theatre, and when he took his lonely candle, pale burning like a Welsh corpse-candle, into his little sitting-room, his heart stood still again until he had mastered his emotion and reached the table, and found that among the letters brought by the last post there was none for him from her. The postman ought to be a thoughtful and melancholy creature, he must surely, if he has any faculty of thinking at all, be able to understand that not one letter in every thousand he carries can bring satisfaction to him or her who receives it. He must know that every bundle of letters he delivers at any given door fails to contain at least one letter which somebody in the house is yearning for, and which, if it came, would mean to that somebody the whole contents of the delivery. To be a contented postman one ought to be a misanthrope, for out of every package of letters delivered at any house the majority are assuredly wearisome and disagreeable to receive, and the whole lot are to somebody detestable because they do not contain the one particular letter for which the heart of that somebody yearns, pines, and bleeds. Jim Conrad sometimes felt like this, and turned this over in his mind as day after day and night after night he longed and looked for a letter from Clelia Vine, and no letter came. One night at last his good luck found him. He was dining at the Voyagers' Club with Rose, they two alone. They were fast comrades now, and they had gone to a theatre and had seen pretty dancing, which the elder man enjoyed with a quite youthful delight, and on which Conrad, his mind perturbed and distracted with other thoughts, found it hardly possible to keep his attention fixed. Then they went back to the Voyagers' Club for a cigar and a whisky and soda. 
"'When shall I see you to-morrow?' Sir Francis asked, as the time was coming for breaking off the sitting. "'Whenever you like.' "'Well, you may as well come to luncheon. "'Then I have to drive about to a lot of places, "'only shops and business things, "'and if you have nothing to do, we might go about together, "'and we can talk all the time.' "'All right. That will suit me admirably.' "'Then that's settled. "'I say, my dear Conrad, "'I shall miss you when you go away.' "'Away? Where?' "'Well, to Patagonia, I suppose.' "'Oh, yes, of course, to Patagonia. "'I was forgetting for a moment. "'I mean, for the moment.' "'Cool young customer,' Rose said with a smile. "'It is nothing, apparently, to you "'to be sent packing off to Patagonia.' "'Patagonia or any other place is much the same to me.' "'And yet you are fond of London.' "'Yes, I am very fond of London, while I am in London. "'But just now I don't care how soon I get out of London.' "'Ah, yes, I understand,' Sir Francis said with a quiet and sympathetic smile. "'The old heart trouble of which I know nothing, "'and of which, my dear Conrad, I don't want to know anything, "'unless at any time you might like to tell me something about it.' I have had some heart troubles myself in my day. I don't know that I have much to tell, Conrad said, not uncheerfully. I suppose I am very much like everybody else in that way. In life, my dear Conrad, nobody's trouble is quite like the trouble of anybody else. I have learned that these long years. You will learn it sometime. They were now standing at the door of the club. "'Rose hailed a hansom. "'Good night,' he cried. "'Don't forget luncheon to-morrow.' "'Conrad walked home. "'He found his faithful candle waiting for him on the hall table. "'He lighted it and went mechanically upstairs. "'When he got into his sitting-room "'he could just see by the pinched and flickering light of his candle "'that a letter for him, only one, was lying on his table.' and even by the light of that unsatisfactory candle he saw that the writing on the envelope was the writing of Clelia Vine. "'We have arrived in London, but we have not yet positively settled anywhere, and may change our ground to-morrow. I will let you know to-morrow evening where we are to be found. Our further movements are all quite uncertain. We came here through Spain to avoid France.' Gertrude has suffered much, though she won't admit it, and bears bravely up. When you see us, don't say anything about her trouble. If she wishes to speak to you about it, you had better leave her to do so. You have been thinking of us, I know, and we have been thinking of you. Clelia I ought to have written to you before, but I couldn't. I hadn't the heart. That was all, but it was a great deal for Conrad. He put the letter to his lips, then he went downstairs again carrying his candle, which he put on the hall table, and there he extinguished it, and then he wandered out into the night, for he felt that he could not sleep for some hours yet. It was not long after midnight, and the night was divine in moonlight. 
Conrad loved a long, lonely tramp at night through silencing London. He loved such a tramp at all times, but especially at night, when anything had fast, deep hold upon his mind and his heart. He wandered on, hardly knowing whither he was going. He passed along Piccadilly, he turned into Grosvenor Place, and he made for the nearer end of the Chelsea Embankment. A vague thought took him that he should like to see that moon shining on the river. Before he reached the embankment, or even the old Chelsea Hospital, with its clock-face shining a pale yellow against the silver of the moonlight, he came upon a dull little street, which he had often passed through in the daytime. It was a street made up for the most part of mean little dwellings and two or three small stables. There were two or three laundries there, and one or two public houses. There was a shop for the sale of stuffed birds. So far as these were concerned, nothing could well be less attractive or picturesque. But there was an attraction which had often drawn Jim Conrad that way. At the farther end of the street, as he was now entering it, and on his right-hand side, there stood an old ivy-covered church within a walled and railed enclosure of its own. The church had a square tower with battlements, like the keep of an old Norman castle. It had oblong windows, narrow and curiously suggestive of defence in time of civil trouble. Conrad knew nothing about the church, did not even know its name. He had never troubled to find out, although he might have found out by simply crossing the street and reading the announcements of sermons and services and church social entertainments, which were placarded in print and white paper on a two-legged splay-footed notice-board which stood on the grass within the enclosure. But he had never had the curiosity to look. What had always fascinated him was the church itself, with its strange old-world militant sort of look, the church standing proud and lonely there among those petty shops and mean little houses, and frowsy women huddled at doorsteps, and dirty children enjoying themselves with skipping-ropes and tip-cat, and waltzing on the pavement to the hideous discord of a barrel-organ. But now, this night, there was no nerve-disturbing barrel-organ, there were no uncombed and blatant women, there were no children with skipping-ropes or other instruments of torture. All was peaceful, all was still, as if it were fair melrose by moonlight, and only the stately, battlemented, ivy-clad church remained. The moon flooded it with light, and Conrad gazed at it in a curious sort of rapture. What on earth had it to do with Jim Conrad? How could an old church in a London slum help him on through the troubles of his life? He could not tell. The wisest man that ever lived could not tell, could not have told. All Conrad knew was that he had been inspired, no, not merely inspired, but actually driven, to look on that stately old church by Clelia Vine's letter, and that he could not help himself. That is just as good an explanation as can be given for many, not to say most, of the mysterious impulses of our lives. Nor could Jim Conrad tell then, or now, why, after having looked on that battlemented church, he should forthwith, 
stride off to the flat in the immediate neighbourhood of Berkeley Square and look up at the windows, and observe, with a certain interest, that the lights in Sir Francis Rose's rooms burned brightly still at two hours after midnight. Jim did not stop to ask himself what possible connection there was between Clelia Vine's letter and the Chelsea Church, between the Chelsea Church and Sir Francis Rose's lodgings. Jim was punctual at luncheon the next day. That day, it should rather be said, for he had not gone to bed before the new day had fairly settled itself down upon the world. Sir Francis and he talked over many schemes and projects. "'You sat up late last night?' said Jim, during a pause in the discussion of practical or visionary schemes. "'So I did,' said Rose. "'I often do. But how did you know? About last night, I mean.' "'Well, I happened to pass under your windows, and I saw that your lights were burning.' "'Yes, yes. You were at some festive gathering in this quarter, no doubt?' "'No, indeed. I had been wandering on the fringe of the Chelsea region. I had been looking at a very picturesque old church that I have taken a fancy to, in a slum near the old Chelsea hospital.' Sir Francis Rose looked up with puckered brows and a curious appearance about him, as of one who gets a dim suspicion that some trap is being laid for him. "'What is your church?' he asked, in a hoarse, embarrassed voice, a voice which had lost in a moment all its music. "'Whereabouts is it? What do you know about it?' "'About it? Oh, I know absolutely nothing. Only it has caught my fancy.' and I go and see it every now and then. But you haven't told me what church it is or where it is. Jim looked up a little disconcerted. He had not expected to find his innocent little narrative excite so much keen interest. Oh, it's only a church in a little street called Pagan's Row, not far from the old hospital. The church in Pagan's Row? Sir Francis Rose asked still turning his puckered eyebrows on to Jim's face. "'What do you know about it? Have you any association with it? Have you heard anything about it?' "'I don't know anything about it,' Jim said rather curtly. "'Do you?' "'Yes, I do. Yes, my dear Conrad, I do. But it doesn't matter in the least. It is only an odd sort of coincidence that you should have been there last night and have come straight away here.' "'I don't know anything about any coincidence in the matter,' Jim said. "'And I don't know why I put you to the trouble of hearing anything at all about my utterly unimportant midnight wanderings.' "'London is full of coincidences,' Rose observed gravely. "'All right,' Jim replied. "'Let them coincide.' For he was still a little annoyed at the way in which his passing reference to his harmless midnight wanderings had been taken by his chief. After a while a hansom was called and the two drove out together. Sir Francis Rose seemed by this time to have forgotten all about the church in Chelsea and the coincidence, whatever it was. They called at the bookshop in Berkeley Square and at the Berkeley Hotel and other places. It was a beautiful day of the earlier spring. It was one of those rare days which make the more picturesque quarters of London look romantic and enchanting. 
Jim Conrad drank in the very life and rapture of the hour. The letter he had received had filled him with a strange sense of hopefulness. The letter and the weather seemed to be part of the one spell. "'I'll not go in,' Jim said as they stopped at an engraver's in Piccadilly. "'I'll wait here for you.' He did not want to bury himself even for five minutes in a dull back room of a shop. "'All right,' said Rose carelessly. "'I shan't keep you very long.' Jim looked along Piccadilly eastward. He felt somehow uplifted to a mood of enchantment. It was the letter, no doubt. He glanced into the shop as if to make sure that Rose was not present to see anything that might be going to happen. He could not tell why, but he felt as if he could not always trust himself in an overwrought emotional mood with Rose. Rose had lived through and lived down all moods, Jim thought, in which thought, of course, he was utterly wrong. But the talk of exhausted worldly experience in which Rose so often indulged had quite taken in the younger man, and made him believe that Rose had lived down, had outlived all human emotion. Rose would have been greatly pleased to hear that he had succeeded in producing such an impression on his young friend. And then Conrad looked up again, and the whole street, the whole scene was blotted out for him and he saw nothing but two great melancholy eyes looking fixedly at him. And then he jumped out of his cab. An open carriage had stopped beside him on the pavement, and he saw Clelia Vine, and afterwards, when his eyes lent themselves to other realities, he saw Gertrude Moorfield. Both women were in mourning, Gertrude was looking thin and wasted. Jim took the hand of each girl in his. For some occult reason, wholly unexplained in his own mind, he called them Gertrude and Clelia. Probably he thought it was a way of showing his sympathy. "'You got my letter?' Clelia asked, and she gave him a meaning glance which told him that the talk must soon be over. Yes, but it gave me no address. We were too unsettled as to our doings. Now we have found a place. We have not a moment to spare. Good-bye. But I shall hear from you. Oh, yes, of course, she answered with a sweet smile and a tint of blush. I shall send you our address this evening. You must come and see us as soon as you can. Gertrude wants to see you. And so do I. Do you stay long in town? You shall know all when I see you. Now, good-bye. She held out her hand. He pressed it, and then took Gertrude's half-extended hand. He found no pressure in that. Gertrude had not spoken one word. The carriage was just driving away as Sir Francis was coming out of the shop. He stared at the ladies. Neither of them looked at him. His eyebrows contracted. He set his lips closely together. He was evidently trying to keep down or conceal the effect of a sudden surprise. "'What is the matter?' 
Jim asked in no little astonishment. He had never seen Rose under the influence of surprise, had not supposed that there was anything on earth that could surprise him. But Jim was destined in that matter to be a little surprised himself. "'I don't know what is the matter with you, Conrad,' Sir Francis said in a peevish tone. "'You have nothing about you today but coincidences. First you start the church in Pagan's Row, and then—' "'And then?' Jim asked. "'What's the—and then? And what's the matter with the church in Pagan's Row?' "'Well, but I say these confounded coincidences rather pitch a man off his balance. Who were the ladies you were just now speaking to?' "'Is there any coincidence in that?' Jim asked almost angrily. He did not by any means like the new manner of his friend, and was much inclined for the moment to stop the cab, get out, and leave Sir Francis Rose to the enjoyment of his own humours. Sir Francis evidently began to think that he had lost his head rather too much. He pulled himself together with a laugh, and said, "'My dear Conrad, I must really apologise for my bad temper, and beg you to excuse me.' truth is that I fancied I recognised one of the ladies in the carriage, and my mind had been turned in the direction of the lady I supposed I had known by your confounded allusion to the church in Pagan's Row. Dear boy, I was secretly married in that church. I was only too anxious to forget all about it, but, you see, you wouldn't let me. How on earth could I know? Why, of course, my dear good friend, you could not possibly know. But in some of my moods I am a mere bundle of nerves, and the allusion to the church in Pagan's Row, followed up by my fancied recognition of one of the ladies you were speaking to, was too much for me. Bowled me over, in fact. Do forgive me if I seemed rude or petulant. I didn't mean to be anything of the kind, I do assure you. "'All right,' Jim answered cheerily. "'It doesn't matter in the least. "'The ladies I was talking to are the girls of whom I told you. "'One of them has lost her mother.' "'Ah! I did not so much notice her.' "'But how do you know which was which? "'As you don't, I fancy, know either of them.' "'Well, I take it that the one in the deepest mourning "'was the daughter of the dead mother.' "'You seem to have looked at them pretty closely,' Jim said, with a somewhat questioning smile. "'One takes in a good deal at a glance when it has been his habit to train himself to observation,' Sir Francis replied, now once again completely master of his voice and of himself. "'Whom did you suppose the other lady to have been?' Jim asked with a sudden, shuddery sort of feeling passing through him. "'My dear boy, I thought, if you will have it, that she was my wife.'" End of chapter 16